Welcome back to Halford and Bruff Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Israel Fair filling in. The official automotive sponsor of Halford and Bruff is the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer. As I mentioned uh, before the break, Izzy, the Women's World Championships are underway and tomorrow is the big match that we all circle on our calendar when the schedule is released. It will be Canada and the USA, uh, both countries currently undefeated in round-robin play, which comes as no great surprise. And joining us now, she writes for The Athletic, writes for Sportsnet as well. Uh, you can also hear on the hear her on the Too Many Men podcast. Shana Goldman joins the show. Shana, thanks very much for doing this. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. And you know, we're all very excited, as always, to watch Canada and the U.S. tomorrow when they clash uh, for at least the first time, or uh, we'll see if they end up meeting in the medal round again tomorrow at the tournament. I'm always curious uh, because, you know, we saw we, we, things get out of hand between Canada and Japan, right? It's a 9 nothing final, 69-5 to are the shots for Canada. How much can we actually learn about the Canadian and the American teams early in this tournament before they face off with each other? It's really tough because the USA-Canada game does provide each team with a measuring stick of where they are, where they need to be, and how they need to match up to each other because that's who we generally presume to be in the finals. Um, There's takeaways still because, you know, for a team like Team Finland, we know that that's a team that can still compete and can push for a medal as well. It's how these teams don't take their foot off the gas or how they handle, you know, playing in the lead. There's effects where teams tend to sit back a little bit more when they're leading in games and that can create problems later on it helps to obviously have a huge lead for it you know to allow themselves to do that but in you know games like usa finland the other day there wasn't this huge margin despite the shots being so imbalanced because of annie keesler's amazing play so it was about how teams navigate those moments do they keep pressuring do they keep you know changing things up and trying to find other ways to score, even though they're still peppering the goaltender with shots and, you know, what they can do from there. And then obviously this last preliminary game, when it comes up, then it'll be tighter and they can, you know, measure the games a bit differently. Six months ago it was the Olympics. And now we've got the, the world championships for, for the first time uh, in, in the same calendar year, um, Canada won the gold. And while, uh, that's been a, you know, a recurring thing for Canada at the Olympics. Uh, the, the U.S. tends to have a little bit more success at the Worlds. Uh, but coming off of that, that, that quick turnaround, how has the U.S. tried to adjust after losing that gold? What's different about this team compared to the one that was playing at the Olympics? So some of the biggest differences are the names who aren't on this roster and the names who are actually getting minutes this time around. At Worlds last year and at the Olympics, you could look at Team USA and see the veterans that you expect to get minutes, getting the majority of the minutes, the Hillary Knights, the Kendall Coins, Alex Carpenter, Lee Steckline. But that's kind of all who was getting those minutes. They were leaning so heavily on their veterans that you could really see in the Olympics it weighed on them. And they didn't have that same jump in their step by the time the gold medal game rolled around. And younger players who can provide a spark, like Grace Dumwinkle, weren't getting minutes. And some were just stapled to the bench, like Caroline Harvey and Jinsey Dunn. So there wasn't enough dimension to Team USA. And a huge difference now is with new, uh, new coaching staff, they've really changed up the lines and they're giving players opportunities who never had them before. Um, you know, you could still point out some things, like Abby Rock could use more minutes, sure. But someone like Taylor Heisey, who's new to this team, is playing the second-line center role, and she's thriving. She probably wouldn't be playing at all had 
the previous coaching staff been here for the tournament. Maybe she would get minutes as a 13th forward. But when the games got closer, like USA Canada, she probably would have gotten so few minutes. Um, power play is finally clicking. And their overall offensive attack has a little bit more dimension than it did before. They're generating more off the cycle. They're pressuring more. And, you know, it's every game, you know, at the Olympics before USA Canada, you could point to the high shot totals that they had but they weren't always the greatest shots or it was a little bit predictable. So now there's just a little bit more, you know, a little bit more going on with this team. You know, it's an interesting dynamic, Shana, because I think so much of the conversation often with women's international hockey is why is the gap between Canada and the U S and the rest of the world? Why does it remain so significant? But I also look at it, the cycle of Canada and the U S challenging each other and forcing each other to kind of adapt and develop and, and try new things is really interesting because going into the last cycle and ultimately culminating uh, in the Olympic gold, I know it was Canada who was kind of going back to the drawing board and saying, okay, we need to find a way to up our game. We need to find a way to, to adjust and compete with the U.S. And they were able to do that successfully. But it really is an interesting dynamic where, it, you know, kind of the cliche is iron sharpens iron, but it seems like both of these teams are just constantly pushing each other to another level. Yes, absolutely the case. And these are the teams that are going to push everybody else to, you know, the highest level. As much as everyone can look at it and say it's not competitive enough around USA and Canada, the two teams are showing how you need to invest in the women's game and how you need to support the game because this is what you can have when you do it. A team like Sweden cut their funding and it impacted them on the ice. Now you can see that they have funding once more. It's turned things around. And at the Olympics, they are more competitive than I think most of us expected them to be. So, the more the women's game overall is going to get support, the more it's going to grow. And that's why, you know, teams like Japan are starting to shake things up in Czechia and Finland. So, you know, USA and Canada provide that standard. And then for each other, obviously, they're the bar they have to measure themselves against. And Canada did that a lot better at the Olympics. They were a stronger team, but they were more adaptable, which is something USA hasn't been. They were far too rigid, and that's what cost them in the end. So, yeah, these two teams can definitely keep pushing each other but it's going to push everybody else to know how to compete against them too. You talk about young cores maybe emerging for for Canada and in the U.S. Uh, it seems like that there are, as you just mentioned, some players from the countries outside of the two powerhouses that are making an impact and that they're they're, they're standing out. Uh, you had an article up at the Athletic with Haley Salvian detailing ten players to watch at the Women's Worlds uh, so far through a few games. Uh, how is that list faring? Uh, which of the names do you think have uh, made maybe even a bigger impact than you imagined? Um, well, Petra Neiman had made an impact in the wrong way because she did take a major penalty in her first game and then had to miss the next. But I think we saw Finland get off to a slow start at the Olympics and then pull it together, and she was a key part of it, and I think that'll be the case again at this tournament. Um, she's a really, really, really exciting forward to watch, but she just has to be on the ice. Um, but players like Akani Shiga right now against Finland, she, you know, scored a beautiful goal to put her team on the score sheet. Uh, she is a really clutch scorer. She, you know, this team doesn't have the same look as years past because they don't have, uh, Nana Fujimoto in net. So they can't rely on their goaltending until the minute they need their forwards to elevate them. And she's going to be a key part of it. And, you know, from the USA Canada side, it's players like Caroline Harvey, who we were looking at because she had an encouraging camp and she really didn't play much at all at the Olympics. And here she is playing, you know, top four minutes and thriving so far. Looking ahead to that game uh, tomorrow between Canada and the U.S., and we are in conversation here on Sportsnet 650 with Shayna Goldman uh, talking women's world championships. 
you know, look, it's we're used to seeing Mary Philip Poulin be great in those matchups and in big games in general. What are some of the other key players, key matchups that you think are going to decide that meeting tomorrow between Canada and the U.S.? I think Sarah Philly is going to be, you know, an important part of every single game Team Canada plays moving forward. I think that she showed she could be the future of Team Canada, you know, a year ago. And then uh, at the Olympics, she showed she's actually the present and the future. So, you know, a huge challenge for her is not having her mainstay line mates. And I think at first in the tournament, you saw Canada trying to figure out how they're going to manage, even though they were going up against weaker teams, they didn't dominate them the way we would expect them to. And, you know, missing players like Melody Dow and, Natalie Spooner is a huge part of it. So anything that they're going to do is going to be Sarah Fillier. And I think she has, I don't want to say a weaker line right now, but it's not as dynamic as it was before, but she's still carrying it and showing, you know, what a threat she is. So to have that one-two punch between her and Marie Poulin, that's going to be huge. And on the U.S. side, we all expect Hillary Knight to be the difference maker because she has been for so long. But it's going to be players like Hannah Bilka, who, you know, she has really great hands and provides a spark. And she helped get the power play clicking, which was a weakness for USA. And it's going to be players like Taylor Heisey continuing to make her mark on the tournament. She's been a fantastic distributor for the U.S. So if those two lines are clicking and Canada has two lines clicking, that's going to be really strong. And then it'll be a matter of whose depth can come up and which team is rolling four lines and has the skill to keep it up for 60 minutes and then you know, build on that for a potential medal game. Last week, it was announced that uh, Canadian forward Sarah Nurse would be on the cover of the EA Sports NHL 23 game alongside Trevor Zegras. Um, first time that a, a woman's been on the cover of the EA NHL game. What was the the reaction within the women's hockey community about uh, having a, a player uh, from the women's game be, be on the cover of the, the most popular hockey video game? It's such a moment for, you know, women to be, inc- it was such a moment when they were included in the game in the first place. And uh, to be on the cover is even greater because, you, you know, you can't miss it. And someone like Sarah Nurse is the perfect person for it. She was, you know, record-breaking at the Olympics. She had such an incredible tournament and she's been such a hard worker. You know, her game has been defined by her work ethic throughout her playing career. And now it wasn't just a hard worker, but someone who was, such a difference maker and so pivotal in their gold medal win. So it's the perfect person to be on it. And it's just, it really is a huge moment for women's sports because everyone's going to see it. And, you know, girls are going to see that, inspire to be it. And maybe they'll want to play the game a little bit more too because Sarah Nurse is on it. Who wouldn't want that? You know, it's just, it's really a moment for women's hockey to, the more it's in the mainstream, the better. You know, the more it's, it's super simple that, you know, there's men's hockey games, and here it is. There's that melding a little bit more because I think sometimes fans don't want to watch women's hockey, and they have so many reasons, but really it's just another skilled game. So the more it's together, the better off it is, if that makes sense. Absolutely, and I think just in general, I think we're seeing an explosion of interest in women's sports across the board, including women's hockey, and I think slowly but with a little bit of consistency now, kind of the powers that be, media, video games, all of that are starting to catch up and realize that, hey, this is something people are interested in. This is something we can invest in. And I hope we continue to see more of that uh, on the women's side of the hockey world. Uh, Just while we have you, Shane, I want to ask you a little bit uh, about the upcoming NHL season as well. You know, we're, we're not that far away now from training camp and all of that. And 
just from a kind of league-wide perspective, one of the things I, I'm most curious about this year is when you when we look at the Eastern Conference from last season, there was such a, such a significant gap between the playoff teams and the also-rans in the Eastern Conference. I, I really can't remember a situation quite like it, but if you look at a lot of the teams that missed the playoffs in the East last year, they've really invested and are, and are trying to go for it. I mean, obviously Columbus, New Jersey, Detroit, Ottawa. When you look at the Eastern Conference, is there one of those teams that missed out last year but you think has done enough to put themselves solidly in playoff contention uh, in that conference? So I think a team like the New York Islanders has done literally nothing but probably will be in you know the playoff conversation because their core is good enough to get there. But last year was just a tire fire in every which way for them. But for teams that actually did something this offseason and remembered you can find players, make trades, and do all those kinds of things, it's the Ottawa Senators and Detroit Red Wings that stand out. The Red Wings have a really interesting forward group, and you know they bolstered it with David Caron and Andrew Kopp, and they really focused on their defense, which is something that hurt them last year. They had a strong start, and then you would see these games where their defense would just fall apart, and it was odd man rush after odd man rush back, and games just worked. You know, the team was collapsing in games, so... I think that they've addressed that to make them, you know, a bit more competitive. But the team for me is Ottawa. That forward group is really exciting now. And Debrinkat with, you know, Stutzel and Junior, that's a great second line. They already have a strong first line. And then players are going to be more slotted appropriately below them because there's players that should be on the second line there. And, you know, the goaltending looks to be a little bit more stable too. The big question is defense. It's a systematic thing. It's a personnel thing. If they can add one more defenseman, I think, you know, one really strong top four defenseman, the team could be a threat to really shake up that wild card situation a bit more. You know, the Atlantic division is super competitive and that's still going to be the case, but it's interesting to see these disruptors like Ottawa and Detroit kind of pop up. Who do you think the favorite is? Because uh, Tampa's done it over and over again, but it seems like there's probably going to be a little bit more competition. We saw how good Florida was last year and they add Matthew Kachuk. Carolina's really been a strong team for a number of years, and I guess we're still kind of waiting for that major breakthrough. And uh, then there's Toronto. They had a, a great season, a great regular season last year, and the playoffs went uh, the way that it has gone for Toronto many times over the last few years. Which which team in the East do you think is the team to beat heading into the year? On paper, I think it's the Maple Leafs. I think that this is a team that is so strong and just needs tweaks and adjustments, but you know, it's uh, a mental thing as well. You could see that will to win, as cliche as it is between Tampa and Toronto, you could see it kind of trend in opposite directions after game six. I felt like um, it's just the goaltending. There's potential for it, but it can fall apart. But, you know, the Colorado Avalanche show that if you're so strong offensively and defensively, you can get away with average goaltending, which they did throughout the postseason after Darcy Kemper did have a really strong year. So the Maple Leafs can definitely follow that mold. They should be the best team in the East, but they're also the Maple Leafs. So will anyone be surprised <laughs> if it's a team like Carolina or Tampa jumping ahead of them? Absolutely not. <laughs> well said, Shane. And, you know, just before we let you go, I mean, can't can't let you leave without asking about the Canucks. It, it was not the eventful, you know, full of fireworks offseason that I think a lot of us here in Vancouver expected. As far as we know, JT Miller is going to start the season on this team. I mean, what, what do you make of the Canucks, where they stand, and, and how they fit in the pecking order of the Western Conference? The Canucks are an interesting team because there's so many different ways they could have gone this offseason. It could have been a player like Miller on the move. It could have been Besser. They could have changed something up. You know, 
they had all these options, and it's always funny when teams you think are going to have, like, the spiciest of off-seasons, and it ends up being kind of bland. But it's not necessarily the worst thing because there was potential. And the coaching change, I think, really helped show what the team had potentially, you know, on both ends of the ice, there were clear improvements. And I do like ads like Ilya Mikheyev. I think that he's very good, you know, on both ends of the ice, and he's someone that can add a spark to the penalty kill, something they absolutely positively need more than most teams in the league. That penalty kill definitely struggled, struggled at times. But could you have looked for a little bit more from Vancouver? Absolutely. You know, is this a playoff team? That's that's going to be a tough one. As much as they might want to, like, capitalize off the momentum they had at points last year, you know, did they do enough? I'm not sure. But, you know, there's nothing that says you can't change the team in season two and make tweaks. It's just a team would have to be very bold to do that. So as long as they figure out what's ailing them, if their start isn't perfect and they can find ways to improve throughout the year, they're on the right track. But that's the biggest question. You know, some teams have a poor start and they're doomed the rest rest of the year. They're playing catch up. Will Vancouver figure out whatever they need to, you know, be a threat in the Pacific soon enough? Because I'm not sure on paper if the roster is at that level just yet, but you know, there's potential there. Shana, we always really appreciate the time. Thanks for chatting with us today. Enjoy the rest of the uh, the World Championships. Thanks for having me. That Thanks, is Shana. Shana Goldman. She writes for The Athletic, uh, Sportsnet as well. And you can also hear her as part of the Too Many Men podcast, weighing in on the women's worlds and also a little bit of NHL talk uh, towards the end there. And just, you know, on the, on the Women's World Championships, first mm-hmm. of all, Izzy, I find it so fascinating because... I'm I'm always hyped for Canada and the US, right? Yeah, and even yeah. like, you know, we we had this same conversation with the World Juniors. Oh, it's August, it's the non-traditional time. How much interest is there? I mean, this one's overseas, which makes it a little more difficult. I do think when Canada and the US play, like you have that built-in guaranteed rivalry, you know, that's going to be a really compelling event, a really compelling game to sit down and watch. The the and we got into a little bit with with Shayna the the issue the ongoing issue of the competitiveness with the rest of the world I find it so fascinating because I think the rest of the world has improved a lot obviously they've improved a lot it's just that Canada and the U S have perhaps improved even more because right. they're so they're so intent on beating each other they have taken these massive leaps forward we keep seeing this next wave of talent and. The game, the women's game is in such an interesting point because they have the one guaranteed winner of a game and a product where you know it's going to be fantastic. I'm not sure how you bridge that gap. But I'm also not sure, as Shana said, it just comes down to investment from mm-hmm. the other companies or from the other countries. It's also just such an interesting thing because they still manage to put on a pretty compelling product just with those two teams yeah, yeah. Uh, being able to compete with each other. For sure. And to hear her talk about the difference in Team USA being hey, look, there are these older players that have been huge for for that program. But there is this wave now that they actually have some more options and they're trying to keep up with Canada. And you see, uh, listening to to the women involved in the games, how much faster their games have gotten over the years. And that's, that's, I think, true across all sports now. The speed of the game has never been faster. Yeah. But to hear that from the upper echelon of the women's game and that, that is the standard. And yeah, like we were talking about how the other countries have such a gap to make up. Well, now it's, it is even larger because at the high end, mm-hmm. it is, it's never been better. And the games have, I think, never been better. You know, the, the, we have the dramatic moments from the, the Olympics in those gold medal games. But these games that we've seen them play 
um, I guess over the last couple of years, you know, since the pandemic, really. And they had you know some games at the Worlds last year at the Olympics. Like these games, the actual quality of the games, mm-hmm. I don't think has ever been better. And I think the comparison that is interesting to make, and something I think a lot of people thought the women's sport would follow a similar track, is if you look at men's international basketball, right? And you think of Team USA, the dream team in mm-hmm. 1992, absolutely just crushing the field, right? Same thing in 1996. But what happened is then the rest of the world caught up pretty yeah. quickly. It was only 2004. It's 12 years later that Team USA did not win the gold, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of people thought something similar would happen in women's hockey. The difference is, again, you know, USA basketball didn't have an antagonist to keep driving it, right? They were able to rest on their laurels. They were able to say, ah, oh, whatever, you know, we'll send not necessarily our best guys because we're so good. And that caught up to them. That bit yeah. that bit them in the end and it gave the rest of the world a chance to catch up. In in this situation, you have these two teams constantly driving each other to get better. I think that explains a lot of why it hasn't developed quite like that. Then there's also the question of investment and, you know, are, are, are the countries giving the women's game short shrift? That's all important as well. But I do find the dynamic just really fascinating uh, how Canada and the U.S. continue to be staying ahead of the field, unlike in, you know, USA basketball, where they had to kind of go back to the drawing board and say, oh, man, we got to get serious here, guys, because we're, we're in danger of losing our top spot. Yeah. And look, the countries that emerged, you look at Spain, you yep. look at Argentina, you hear or you look at France, you hear from those those countries or, or even Greece. You know, Greece has a basketball culture. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a bas- basketball culture in a place like Turkey. Uh, there's certainly a basketball po- culture in a place at- like the Balkans. Yes. Yeah. I mean, so that was the thing, like the, the, the country country in, in quotation marks that would have been the big rival to Team USA would probably have been Yugoslavia. They were having a civil war at the time that broke up all of those countries. And now, you know, Serbia is good, Croatia is good, but there wasn't that ready-made thing. And then the, the countries that emerged, Spain, Argentina, France, they talk a lot about how influential not just the Dream Team was, but Michael Jordan yeah. was as a professional playing for the Bulls. And with the women's game, that figuring out that professional aspect has been such a big part. That's the next step. You hear about the PHF and what kind of day-to-day, in-your-face, we are playing and we have a high standard. Not just because of what it means for the players involved, but what it means for the next generation. Because if it had just been Team USA is great and they play every two years, every right. four years, right. it wouldn't be the same whereas you hear from the Gasols. Or you hear from Tony Parker, and you're mm-hmm. like, I was obsessed with Michael Jordan, and I couldn't get enough of Michael Jordan through the 90s, and then you go on to Kobe and Shaq, and those influences are there. And th- that's the next step, I think, for the women's game. And once they figure that out in Canada, in the U.S., a place for the women that play at that high level to have a professional home, then I think you might see that explosion. Because then the, the content is there. The, yep. the access is there for the, the women in the other countries to have a place to go professionally, but also an inspiration. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, Sports at 650, Halford and Bruff, Jamie Dodd, and Israel Fair filling in. We've got an open segment coming up next, so get your text in, 650-650. I want to talk a little bit about the Seattle Mariners, not so much what they did on the field over the weekend, although they had a good series against the Cleveland Guardians, but the Julio Rodriguez contract, because I think it's fascinating. I think it has some interesting lessons for the NHL as well. So we'll talk about that. That's coming up next. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. 
Time now for Sportsnet 650 traffic from the City News 1130 Air Patrol. What is going on? Welcome back. Halford and Bruff here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Israel Fair filling in again for the uh, vacationing once more. One final gasp of vacation for Halford and Bruff. They will be back next week. Uh, well earned, right? Well yes, earned. Well earned. They did the one, one week. week of work. They did the one week together and they thought, you know what? That's enough. I mean, Bruff also had to do a week with you. Bruff had to do a week with me, which obviously very trying for him. Very tough. Uh, although he had some positive things to say about me, actually, on the uh, on the show that week. So I think maybe he enjoyed the the break from Halford a little bit. <laughs> well, yeah, nobody yawning while he's talking. He really liked that. <laughs> so I was on my best behavior. Yes. Yeah, no yawning. No yeah. yawning in front of uh, Jason Bruff. <laughs> uh, Lena, is Lena in there even? Oh, there she is. She's rolling, rolling back in right the on time. Vibes are back. I was gonna say, have we found something for Lena to do? And I guess that answers my question as she strolls into the <laughs> control room a couple of wow. minutes after we get back from break. Wow. Anyways, Andy, a dog, and uh, <laughs> Lena are in uh, as well this week, so we're having a having a great time here on Halford and Bruff. Uh, Halford and Bruff brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Build your company to win with Kubota from Avenue Machinery. And also the Delari family of Acura dealers experience the Delari difference today. Visit your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. So uh, we touched on the Blue Jays a little bit earlier. Obviously, it's you know it's coming up on September here. It is the the stretched drive for Major League Baseball, and the Seattle Mariners been a feel good story around the league pretty much all year, or at least since they went on that big winning streak and got themselves back into the playoff race. It looks certainly like they have a very very good chance of making the playoffs and finally snapping that drought that we all know about here. Good good series for them against Cleveland over the weekend. But the biggest thing that happened for the Seattle Mariners, obviously, and I know it broke on Friday and we kind of got the news coming out in, in fits and starts because it is so complicated as they lock up their star, young outfielder, rookie Julio Rodriguez, who's having a fantastic rookie season for them to a massive, massive long-term extension. I believe guaranteed 12 years, but then there's all these options, and it could be a lot longer than that. I think it's eight years to start, and then the options start to kick in. But we could be looking at something like 14, 15-year deal. It could be 18-year deal when all is said and done uh, for Julio Rodriguez and the Seattle Mariners. It sounds like 18's tough based on a lot of this has to do with MVP voting. Yes. Um, And as you mentioned, Jamie, there's options, and at one point it's – club options and that's when the Mariners after I believe seven years have the option to extend for eight or ten but some of that is dictated by MVP finishes and um, it says uh, Ken Rosenthal at the Athletic had a a column up with his take on it but also some more details of what the contract looks like Um, if he wins the MVP twice he would push that the 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 value would be the 350 over the the subsequent 10 years on the option so the total value would be almost four seventy million, mm-hmm. and he, he writes that Mike Trout and Albert Pujols are the only two players in the league that won two MVPs in their first seven years. Yeah, so it's it's a really tall order. Really happen. tall order. Then there's a, another escalator where it's four top ten finishes. So that's just voting. Uh, the only current players to have four top ten finishes in the first seven years of their career: Mike Trout, Pujols. Obviously, they won twice. Mookie Betts, Nolan Arenado, Andrew McCutcheon, and Josh Donaldson. So, th- I mean, if Julio Rodriguez is going to earn the, the extreme part of the contract, he's going to be one of the yes. 10 best players in the league. And look, that's that's the bet that's being made. I think this is a really 
fun contract for that reason because there's you know something to follow I think every year beyond the fact that this guy looks like a franchise player for a rookie season he's had a great year for the Mariners he had a bit of a slow start but I think he was unlucky at the beginning of the year there was some uh, I know Mariner fans were really upset at the beginning of the year because he was on the wrong end of a bunch of bad strikeouts mm-hmm. that were like, mm-hmm. the calls were going against them and he actually was correct not to swing but he's turned it around. He's got 800 OPS for a rookie playing center field. We saw what he did at the All-Star game. There's clearly star power there in the home run derby. Uh, he's got personality, and now he's committed to yep. Seattle. And even if things don't work out, he could still be there for 13 years. So. Well, and the thing is, in, in baseball, right, with no salary cap, what's the downside of this deal, really? I mean, obviously, you don't want to be paying a guy who doesn't pan out, but there's so much upside for on this deal as well. And I was thinking about this, you know, just from a fan's perspective, because you saw the reaction in Seattle and over the weekend, and I know they were honoring Ichiro as well, so it was already set up to be a celebration, but the mood in Seattle, specifically because of this deal, right, because of the news that Julio Rodriguez, the young star, has basically signed up to potentially be a career Seattle Mariner, it was such a moment of joy and celebration for that team and those fans. Like you heard the ovation when he walked up uh, for his first plate appearance over the weekend, right? After the news had broken. Phenomenal. People are so excited. People are so happy that this happened for their team, that they get the chance to celebrate this player and they don't have to worry about it anymore. And it it got me thinking about how this situation would have played out in the NHL, right? Because you can't do this in the NHL. You can't tear up a player's entry level deal and sign them to a massive extension five months in to their rookie season. Instead, what happens is a guy has a phenomenal rookie season and it's, oh boy, what's this next contract going to cost us? Are they going to, do you think? It's true. It sucks. Do you think horrible? Do you think they're going to be able to sign him long-term or or should they go over a bridge with him? I mean, think how quickly the conversation turned with Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes, where instead of just appreciating having talented young players in this city performing at a high level, immediately it goes, this is really going to screw up our cap, what kind of contracts. And yes, we could sit here and look at decisions made by the prior regime and did they set themselves up in the best way to give themselves room to make the best contracts possible? No, probably not. But to me, and this is not excusing (laughs) the decisions made (laughs) by the Jim Benning Canucks regime, I think it's I think it sucks for the sport. I don't think it's the conversations that you and I yep. want to have on the air. Uh, that I don't. I I think the fans would rather do exactly what you described with Julio Rodriguez. We signed our guy. Let's this celebrate. Awesome. This is awesome. We know we're building around yes. him. We have certainty he is going to be here. He is going to be a part of our franchise. And I know, especially in the NHL, I find fans are extremely leery of long term deals. They're right. Oh, no, no, no. Short term, short term. Don't give out term. But in this situation, like, so take the Elias Patterson example. Because I think it's actually a really interesting comparison for Julio Rodriguez, right? Where the guy now, now the Canucks didn't have the team success that the Mariners are having in, in Patterson's rookie year. But somebody comes in and immediately you think, okay, he can be the face of the franchise because of his performance, because of the way he's capturing the imagination of the fans, all of that. In his rookie year, you're looking at and saying, Wow, this is a guy we need to build around. What if the Canucks could have signed Elias Pettersson to uh, a 12-year, $8 million per season extension, right? So, okay, last two years of your ELC, we'll pay you $8 million instead of, you know, uh, below a million yep, like yep. you'd normally get. 
but we don't have to deal with the RFA situation and you sitting out and worrying about an offer sheet and you miss the first few, uh, the, the start of training camp yeah. last season. We don't have to deal with that. We don't have to deal with the threat of arbitration after this next one ends. We don't have to deal with, you know, oh, will he take his qualifying offer and force his way to free agency? We can put all of that to bed for a decade plus right now and bet on this player and give our fans a moment of celebration and a statement that we're going to build around this young star. And then you think about it from a financial perspective, if they could have signed him to that term of long type of long-term deal, they'd be in a much better position right now because now you're looking at it and saying, oh, again, man, if he, if he gets back to the form we, we want him to be at, what's that next deal going to look like? Oh, it's going to put them in a really, bu- in a real mm-hmm. bind. He's going to have mm-hmm. a lot of bargaining power. It's going to be <laughs> tough. It would have been so much better for the Canucks, if they could have immediately signed Elias Patterson in his rookie year, struck while the iron was hot, and got him locked up for 10-plus years. And I know there's this idea that all of the limits and the system they have in place and the RFA system and arbitration and offer sheets, it's all put there for the team's protection, right? But sometimes it comes back to bite them. Sometimes it puts them in a really difficult bind. And it's also just, it prevents you from being creative, being flexible, right? Like this deal is, it's so, there's all these different options and different ways it can go. And it makes it make sense for both sides. The system the NHL has prevents that. It forces you into these long, drawn out conflicts and all of this angst instead of just getting a chance to celebrate really good young players, which is what the Mariners are going to have now with Julio Rodriguez. Totally. And it it does it does change the dynamic. Look, NHL decision-making is often conservative. And I thought, okay, well, why do fans rebel against the long-term contracts? Because, look, they've worked out Alex Ovechkin, Sidney Crosby. Those contracts worked out. Now, those guys are upper echelon, first ballot Hall of Fame, inner circle Hall of Fame type guys. Is it really because Rick DiPietro signed a 15-year deal that people don't want to? Then I started thinking about it. When Leon Dreisaitl signed his deal, maybe that was because of the cap hit at the time. It was a long-term deal at a pretty high cap hit, and people freaked out about that. People freak out about the William Nylander and the Mitch Marner contracts. So, of course, I, 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 I see, like, it, it's, it's not a, it, it is not a recent phenomenon. It's been going on for a while. But because of these other younger players that have signed long-ish term contracts and the dry sidle contracts obviously a home run now but that was a contract again that because in hockey mm-hmm. everyone just looks at the cap hit it's such because it's a cap sport even though we could sit here and go well look if you got Elias Patterson to lock in at 8 million for 8 10 12 years early on let's say it's 12 years yeah the eight's probably going to look good. You can feel pretty confident that the eight will look good toward the end of that deal because the expectation of the cap going up and the pandemic threw a wrinkle into that overall. But it's just the way of the NHL to to be afraid. And Toronto decided to do that. And look, they they didn't do they did what they could, you know, within the regulations that are out there. It's not yeah. like they signed Austin Matthews for twelve right. years. But they gave Marner long term. Nylander long-term, Matthews long-term, with the thought of, hey, we'll we'll figure out the cap later, and then that bit them in the butt, and now people are going, they're stupid, and they shouldn't have done that, and this is the best. The best way is to, to not do that. Though I, I'm with you. I'd rather, I mean, I don't like the cap. I don't like the draft. That's a different conversation. But I don't like the cap because I think it just dominates the way that we talk about these contracts, and we do have a text in here from Tyler. 
Grass is always greener if there was no cap or you set it to 2 million or 300 million. Then the talk would be about ownership, not spending. I think that's fair, but then that's an easy conversation. We're not discussing permutations of the cap and AAV and total value and what's JT Miller going to sign for his next contract. Then it's, and then it's not on the player. It's just on, are the owners going to spend? Do they want to win? And I know in baseball, people don't like that there's no cap because they go, everyone ends up with the Yankees or the Red Sox, not Julio Rodriguez. Well, here's the thing. And the ability, when you have the ability to give your young players super long-term deals, that keeps them from going to the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Dodgers. That's a way to actually succeed as a, you know, quote-unquote small market yeah, team. The Rays or not, have done not, Look at the Rays. Evan the t- Longoria and then more recently Wander Frank. Yeah, they've found a way to lock up their players long-term because they can do it when they're still relatively young in their career. The the uh, Atlanta Braves did it with Austin Riley recently, right? They gave him a long-term extension. We've seen it with Fernando Tatis, right? Now, put aside the PED suspension, but... That was a way to keep young, successful, high-end talent in town away from the traditional free agency bidders. I actually think the way the NHL has it currently set up, it makes it more likely that a team is going to lose a star young player, whether it's through traditional free agency or whether it's through some other method, right? Because, I mean, I think the Matthew Kachuk situation. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not expecting Canucks fans to cry a tear for the Calgary Flames, and we all know they ended up doing very well for themselves, yada, yada, yada. But another guy who burst onto the scene, had an incredibly successful rookie year early on, established himself as a star, what if the Flames could have said, okay, here, here's a 10-year deal, a 10-year extension, not before you even an RFA, after your rookie year, or partway through your second season, here's a 10-11 year deal. They would have avoided all of this. They would have avoided being put in this incredibly difficult position that the RFA system ultimately put them in uh, with Matthew Kachuk. And you know, I had this one. Uh, I had this one come up uh, on Twitter. Rusty Canucks at Rusty Canucks uh, tweeted at me comparing Major League Baseball to NHL prospects is silly. Petey for ten plus years is a huge risk because the still has kid still hasn't proved he's worth it. The contact sport that hockey is has more risk than reward for long-term contracts as bodies wear down faster in NHL than Major League Baseball. Now, here, there's a couple things here. First of all, I would say if the Canucks had Elias Pettersson signed right now for, you know, eight or nine more years at $8 million, they'd be thrilled with that. They would be absolutely thrilled with that. As much as you can say he hasn't proven it, whatever, they would be very, very happy with that contract. Now, to your point, is there risk of giving even really good young players at age 20 or 21 long-term deals? Of course there is. But that's one of the other things I like about it is that it's a chance for smart franchises to separate themselves a little bit. As you pointed, the Tampa Bay Rays, they've made some really smart bets like this in their history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some other teams, they might not make such smart bets, but that's fine. That's part of sports. I don't like this idea of, oh, we need, you know, we need to put up the guardrails for NHL GMs. We need to prevent them from making mistakes. <laughs> Let them make mistakes sometimes. That's what separates good teams from bad. If you don't think a player is worth a 10-year deal, guess what? You don't have to give him one. I'm not saying it's mandatory. I'm saying we should give teams the ability to be a little bit more flexible, be a little bit more creative, right? Rather than just the same song and dance we go through every time where, okay, you know, good player coming off his ELC. uh, He's going to sit out until training camp. Then he's going to sign a bridge deal. uh, Then there's going to be a big debate about whether or not he takes his qualifying offer. And uh, then he will. And then, you know, he'll try to push himself out in free agency. And it's just, (laughs) is that really better for the sport or fans? Wouldn't it be so much better to be able to identify your guy, your centerpiece, 
lock them up and have that certainty going forward? We do have a text in here that apparently we're missing the fact, this is unsigned text, that GMs and owners are the ones who don't want the long deals and the high caps. I will acknowledge that. That's part of it. They are protecting themselves. We're talking about but see this from fans. Yeah. How do we enjoy it's like this is, I think, the best hypothetical. Connor McDavid gets drafted. Yeah. What would the Oilers have given him before seeing him play a single yes. NHL game on a long-term deal? Instead, what we got was, I can't believe he took $12 million. He's really going <laughs> to screw up their cap. Yeah. And then he went back and changed the contract to take a little bit less because the system's stupid. It's It would have been amazing if they're like, he, he goes... On the stage at the draft, he gets his Oilers jersey. And then Peter Shirelli's there with a checkbook and just like, here's a blank check, Connor. <laughs> Fill it in. How many years? Oh, okay. We'll take the next 15 they years. They would have signed him on the spot for 15 years. 100%. And $10 at million dollars a year. 100% they would have. And it would have been a great deal for them. Are you yes. kidding me? They had Connor McDavid at $10 million a year for, for the next however many years now. And the, the texter texts in, I totally agree. The same one who said, you know, you guys are missing the fact that it's the GM and the team owners who want it. He also says, I totally agree, uh, but the people in charge are the ones who want the guardrails. It sucks, but I don't know. Yeah. And I do think it's short-sighted, though, from a certain perspective, from the owners and GM's position, right? I, I understand there's this fear of, oh, you know, we got to limit contract length. That takes away power from the players. I don't know that it does, though, because you look at the NBA, Izzy. They went, you know, they used to have long-term deals, right? You could sign seven, eight-year deal. Now it's four, but you can get five from your own team. That hasn't limited player power or player movement in the NBA. In fact, I think you could argue it's increased it because there's always another inflection point around the corner, right? There's always another time where, oh, hey, he's all of a sudden he's only two years from free agency again, and can he use that leverage to force him, force a trade to a different team? I think if you give general managers and owners and teams the ability to say, you know what, we're going to make a special, we're, we're going to show how much we like this player and commit to them long term. It Yes, you it opens yourself up to mistakes, but guess what? They're making plenty of mistakes in this system as well. I think if you actually have the ability to be a little bit more creative, you can find yourself in some really positive situations as a team too. I believe so. And baseball certainly is the sport with the most examples of it because no cap and teams can spend freely and it's not a guarantee. Look, the Washington Nationals reportedly offered Juan Soto a super long-term extension, and he turned it down. But maybe he looked around and said, well, Bryce Harper left, and Anthony Rendon left, and Trey Turner's gone, yeah. and all the other good young players that were here are no longer here. That is obviously an organization that's going in a different direction, and we're talking about major contracts, what he signs for, because that's a guy who's put up numbers in his first four years of his career that are Ted Williams-esque. Mm -hmm. Julio Rodriguez is having a nice season yes, as a rookie. He's not having fielder. a Juan Soto Juan season. Soto is having an uh, incredible beginning of his career, and the market for him is set super, super high, and that'll be fascinating to see if it is San Diego. They just gave Manny Machado and Fernando Tatis big money, and that's, that's a team that... I think when you when you do the list of largely irrelevant franchises in North American sports, the Padres are pretty high up, there. Mm -hmm. and now they're trying to not be by signing, mm -hmm. and they have the ability to do it. Players to right, do the it. owner can step in and actually make yeah. some of these big splashes, make some of these uh, big deals. And this one comes in. I don't follow any other sports. Does no cap lead to bottom end players making less than they do in a hard cap because of the huge contract the stars would get? And you do see. 
look, the the economics of Major League Baseball are so different than the NHL. Yeah. Because you do see, you know, these massive, you know, $300, $400 million deals come down in Major League Baseball. But then you also see the bottom of the roster guys and the minor league players really get squeezed. Mm -hmm. And they have a very, very hard time cashing in. So I understand that concern. And hey, maybe that's a reason. This is the thing with Julio Rodriguez. The way that it works in baseball is your first three years, you are a minimum salary player. Yeah, it's just, and there's. And so he would have been making. $600,000 $600,000 before sign like for the next two years. Cause he's obviously a rookie this year before hitting arbitration. And that's, that is a bit of a convoluted process, but at least they have the hammer of, we don't have to play this no. game. Yeah. We actually can just offer a major contract. Yeah, we can I mean, look, it- I mean, I guess they can too for, you know, Elias Patterson could have signed an eight year. Yeah. But deal. he would have had to wait until after his entry level deal, yes. right? So and I think that's years. the big difference. You can't and look, maybe that's splitting hairs a little bit. And obviously the Canucks And that's to ensure the draft process stays the yeah, same. The Canucks weren't in a position to uh offer Elias Pettersson an eight year deal because of their self inflicted cap wounds. And I want to be fully, fully clear about that. But I just again, you have so much greater flexibility. Uh, as a, a major league baseball team and a general manager than you do in the NHL. And I think just the the kind of knee-jerk reaction that, oh, anything that allows players to really cash in, any sort of long-term deals, big money contracts, are bad for the sport, lead away from parity. That's always that, that's the first reaction you hear when this idea comes up from the NHL or in the NHL. I don't think it's true, and I think you're seeing it. Seattle's not a big market team. As you said, you know, list of irrelevant franchises in sports, that's been the Seattle Mariners for an awful long time, Izzy. But they got a chance because they had the ability to give Julio Rodriguez that deal. They got a chance to make a statement. They gave their fans something to celebrate, and they took a bet on their future. And I have a, I just have a really hard time being against that. I would love to see a situation that puts more teams in the NHL in a position to take those bets as well. Right now, they don't have it. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. We're going to talk a little bit about the BC Lions up next with Matt Baker. We got two guests in the 8 o'clock hour. Uh, Curtis Crabtree is going to join us at 8.30 as well to talk Seahawks. So we'll split what we learned. We'll do a little bit after Baker, a little bit after Crabtree. So get your what we learns in now. Hashtag WWL. What we learned in the last 24 hours of sports. Although I, I guess on Monday you can go the whole weekend. So hey, expand it a little bit. But get your what we learns in now. We'll read them throughout the course of the final hour of the show. It is Halford and Bruff, Sportsnet 650.